theyeshiva.net. Okay, welcome everybody. Please turn to page 39, Dav Chof. I'm not going to say that we finished the previous Mimer. I don't think it's so easy to finish that Mimer. At least I hope we didn't finish the Mimer. But uh, at least we finished reading it. <laughs> so today we'll begin a new Mimer in Torah Er. And it's actually on the Parsha. Parsha's told us. As you see, the A Reyach Bni Kireyach Soda Ashebeirachoi Hashem. Tavchof Ahmed Beis, page 39. Tavchof, the second column. This is a mimer of the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya of the year Tavkuf Samachhe, which would be 1804. It begins with the Pasik of Parshas Teldus, where Yaakov Avinu dresses up like his brother Esav in order to retrieve and obtain the blessings that Yitzchak has designated for Esav. We know the story, Rivka dresses up Yaakov, sends, her, sends him in with the food to obtain the blessings, the brachas. When Yaakov Avinu walks in, Yitzchak Avinu smells, it says, Vayorach Ezreach B'godov, he smells the aroma coming from his clothes, and he exclaims and he says, Re'ereach B'ni, See that the odor, the aroma, the smell of my son is kireach soda asheberachai Hashem. It's like the reach, the aroma of the field that God has blessed. And he uh, extols him and he confirms up, confers upon him the great blessings of Yitan Lecha, Ha'alekim etala shamayim, Ishmane Aritz, Virev Dagan Vesirish, etc., etc. This is the Pasuk on which the Maimah begins. The Balatanya asks the following question, which anyone who reads Parshas Taldus, Vayetze, Vayishlach, the next three Parshas, every year you read it, you learn it, these are questions that any serious student obviously comes across to understand what happens here. Lohavin, the Hayitzchak Haven Shoesav. From Yitzchak's perspective, the man who walks into his room, the boy who walks into his room is Esav, not Yaakov. He asks him, who are you? And he identifies himself as Esav. So he thought he's Esav. And yet he was so, how was he so prominent in his eyes to say the aroma coming from him was like the aroma of the field that God blessed. So you might say, well everyone knows that Yitzchak had a very uh, idealistic perspective on Esav. That's the whole story, right? That's why he wants to give him the bracha. Rivka doesn't want him to get the brach. So he says, that itself, let's understand. You might answer, of course, he thought it was Esav, and he thought Esav was uh, was an angel. Esav was extraordinary. For him, the smell of Esav was a divine smell, the smell of the field that God blessed. He says, Gam be'emes This itself, Taka, be'emes needs to be understood. What exactly did Yitzchak think about Esav? What's the problem? You might say, Every child growing up in Cheder says, Esav was a gewaldic, a gewaldic, a deceiver. He used to come home every day, and Tati said, Vasastigalad in Yeshiva. I don't know if it was Yiddish. It was Yiddish? It was Yiddish for sure, okay? Vasastigalad <laughs> in Yeshiva. What did you learn in Yeshiva? So Esav would say, Esav always had, <coughs> before he left Yeshiva, he made sure to memorize a few things, and it was great. 
That's how we learn. And he used to ask him all these ridiculous or brilliant or perceptive questions about Meiser. And Yitzchak was highly, highly impressed and completely infatuated with Esau. He says, one second. If you think about the story, there's something wrong. When the Pasuk introduces Esau, it says, Kitsayid Bifif. Yitzchak loves Esau, Kitsayid Bifif. Literally it means, there is game, trap. He was a hunter. Tsayid, the game, game as in uh, the prey, the hunt, is in his mouth. So Chazal say, what does this mean? It means he Pashat fed him. Esau went, hunted delicious hunted animals, cooked up food, and gave it to Yitzchak, so he loved him. So Chazal say, Rashi brings it, Sayyid Befiv doesn't mean Befiv of Yitzchak, it means Befiv of Esau, right? Not Sayyid Befiv, game in his mouth, he fed him, but Sayyid game in his mouth, that he would trap Yitzchak, he would deceive Yitzchak, he would, he would hunt Yitzchak, so to speak, with his questions. For example, Eich Masrinus Hatever. Rashi brings from the Medrash Rabbah, he used to ask, how do you tithe? How do you give meiser from straw? And how do you give meiser from salt? What's so brilliant about these questions? The classical interpretation of the Mepharshim, which needs Hasbara, it's not for now. We did a shir last year on it, I think, a Sunday, and that is that Tevin is potter from Truma and meiser. You don't have to give straw, you don't have to tithe separate from straw 10% to 2% to give to the coin, the levy. Why? Because it's not Michael Adam, right? It's Michael Behemoth or even less. It's used for, for, for fuel. The same is true with Melach. So therefore, Esau is such a machmer. Yitzchak was impressed. Azam machmer, such a medaktik in mitzvahs that he wants to know even this. That's the classic interpretation that they teach in the Chadarim, Ketzad Ma'asven Samalodem, so he used to trap Yitzchak. According to this interpretation, Yitzchak lived in a world in which Esau seemed like this extraordinary, assidious, wonderful, wonderful Ben and Yeshiva Bacher, who's steiging away Sayin Teira and Sayin Hidur Mitzvah. That's the impression you get. And Rivka was the realistic mother who knew the reality. But he says, one second, if this is the case, they have a contradiction. Because what happens when Yaakov comes in, and Yitzchak says, how did you do it so fast? So Yaakov says, ki hikra, Hashem, because Hashem helped me. So Yitzchak says, hakoil kol Yaakov ayedayim Esav. So Chazal say, the voice is the voice of Yaakov, why? She says, pa'am amarakosov, hakoil kol Yaakov, later it says, Pasuk says that Yitzchak identifies the voice as the voice of Yaakov. Now it doesn't mean literal voice. Because if it would mean the literal voice, he would know it's not Esau. So already the Mepharshim say the Ramban that Yaakov and Esau were twins and they sounded similar. So therefore, he couldn't know that it's Yaakov versus Esau. Hakol here means the words, the way he speaks, the voice. I hear your voice doesn't mean your voice, your physical voice. It means the... The flavor, the content. Rashi says that Yitzchak knew that Esav does not mention Hashem's name. The name of heaven is not sugar, it's not common in his mouth. So when he hears Esav suddenly referring to the Rebbeinu he gets suspicious. This is not how my son speaks. One sec. But we thought that he's been deceiving you all these years, that he's ex- a, 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 a real Yerei Shemayim, an Echta Yerei Shemayim. 
Suddenly you see here that when somebody is mentioning Hashem's name, he says, this is not Esav, this is Yaakov. So how did Yitzchak see Esav? On one hand, the Pasuk seems to indicate the way Chazal understand it. Kitzayit Befiv, that he trapped Yitzchak. He deceived Yitzchak with a sense of religiosity that didn't really exist. On the other hand, it seems that Yitzchak knew Esav quite well, to the point that when he mentions Hashem's name as a tribute to what he did, and did so swiftly, he says, Ain't shem shemayim This is not Esav, this is Hakol Kal Yaakov, even though Hayadai Midei Esav. Those are the two questions that he raises. And therefore, you have to understand, how does he indeed compliment him and say, your aroma is like the field that God blessed, which again indicates that he sees him as as uh, spiritually lofty and prominent. That, those are the questions that he sets up in the beginning of the mind. Now the truth is that when you think about these questions, and you see his presentation, his answer, it really gives a perspective on something much larger, a much larger drama that unfolds, I guess it's intimated in the questions, but I'll just spell it out in case uh, you haven't seen it here. One of the challenges, <laughs> one of the challenges that exists in uh, Jewish education is, it's probably not the biggest challenge, but it's, it's, I think, an issue worth mentioning, is that when children or even adults read Chumash, they usually never get to feel what the text sounds like because their classes are immediately inundated with mefarshim, Rashi and other mefarshim. So the moment you learn the other mefarshim, it already puts a spin and interpretation on the Pasuk. So it's hard for people to feel the impact of the text itself without any commentary. But there is, of course, it's, 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 it's wonderful and vital to learn the commentaries, Rashi and so forth. But there is a very precious treasure in just reading the text and letting the text impact you and just seeing what the text says. Because when I'm already giving them a fetish on the text before I even finish the Pasuk, I can't distinguish anymore between the actual Torah itself, the Torah Shabbat and what has been explained. And the fact that this is the divine text without the commentary is significant. It's important. The text is Torah Shabal Pet, that's stage two. But the text itself is in itself valuable. But very few who have a uh, good Jewish education even realize this. Because it's right away, you know, every Chumash is Chumash, Rashi, Ramban, Klayoker, Rachaim, Sephardim, Chizkudni, or whatever the Mepharshim are. Earlier Mepharshim, later Mepharshim, Rishonim, Achrenim. So right away it gets filtered through the Mepharshim and you never get to see how does the text actually describe the person. Most glaring example for this is Parshas Taldus. Read the text of Parshas Taldus without any commentary. The whole Taldus from beginning to end. And read it and allow yourself to actually absorb the material and then ask yourself at the end... Who do you empathize with more? <laughs> do you empathize with Yaakov? Or do you empathize more with Esau? The text is so careful, if you wouldn't read him a Mephoidish, you would know almost nothing negative about Esau. We grow up right away. He was a murderer, an adulterer, 
a rapist, he was an abuser, he was a shayfech damim, he was the worst of the worst. Ace of Harasha. And it's right away, goes right into the text. And people don't know, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Chumash. To the contrary. To the contrary. He's born first. Okay, he's a hairy kid. We know. We know he doesn't do well in school. Okay. So he's ADD, ADHD, whatever it is. He's a good hunter. He's a man of the field. He loves his father and his father loves him. And his father's a good guy. Right? Clearly. And uh, then what happens? Think about it. I'm now doing text. Yaakov comes home hungry. Okay. And exhausted. Huh? I'm sorry. Esav comes home hungry. Oh, if he's exhausted. So we write it, we say exhausted from murder. <laughs> Rashi says. But some of the text says. He was exhausted. People come home exhausted. Some of you come home exhausted. All you want is meal. A meal. There's a lentil soup. I have a lentil soup. Can I have a little of the lentil soup? You say, sure. You have a house. It's worth $1.8 million. Write off your house to me, and I'll give you lentil soup. Who exactly is the criminal here? I just want to know. And your car, and your, also your summer home. And the house in Yerushalayim, and the house in Switzerland. Just write off. Here's the deed sign, and I'll give you the lentil soup. <laughs> That's what happens, yeah? I asked you for soup. I asked you for a piece of sushi, for heaven's sake. No, sell me the birthright. Abyssal Madna. Story number one. What's the next story? Already before that, in the womb, he's already holding on to his heel. He doesn't want him to uh, go out first. So who's guilty in that? Who didn't forgive Esau? Then you buy his birthright. Then the old father finally is going to have an intimate moment with his son. Go, bring me food. The son is a simple fellow. He's not, uh, doesn't have a PhD in philosophy and theology. He likes hunting. He's a sportsman. He's, 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 he's a primal kid. He's primal. He's not sophisticated. We understand that. But he loves his father. His father says, go, bring me food. You'll bring it. I'm going to bless you before I die. And his son runs and he brings the food. And it's, we're expecting a very intimate moment between father and son. And the mother, of course, overhears it and calls in Yaakov and says, right, she makes with her hand and she says, I'll prepare the food, you go in and take the brachas. And that's, and that's what happens. Now, it's interesting. I want to point an interesting thing out to you, for you, to you. And that is, Jews don't learn Chumash, I know that. But it's good to know. Torah Shabbat has a shitta. It does not depict emotions. What did Adam feel like after he ate from the tree and God said, why did you eat from the tree? I don't know. What did Noyach feel like after he came out of the ark and there was nobody around? I don't know. I know that he drank. That we know. Yeah. What did Sarah feel like being abducted? I don't know. We don't know. We don't know emotions. We have to speculate all emotions. Most emotions in Chumash are not depicted. It sometimes says a person cries, so you can understand as an emotion. But generally, Yosef is thrown into the pit. What did he feel like? I don't know. Figure it out. Figure it out. We don't know what he felt like. Yeah. There are a few places where you have emotions. Mamish, you can count them on your finger. One of the most uh, explosive Emotional moments in the entire Tanakh 
is when Esau discovers that Yaakov stole the blessings. It's obvious for people who read the text without bias that the Torah goes out of its way to have you empathize with Esau. In fact, there's not a week that I don't read this, there's not a year, I should say, that I don't learn this Pesach, and my heart does not melt when Esau is coming back with the food, expecting this great moment of intimacy, and he discovers that he has been deceived. The way the Torah puts it is so dramatic, because Yaakov gets the blessings, Yitzchak finishes, Yaakov leaves, Esau comes, he walks in, he says, let my father rise up, eat from the game, from the food of his son, so that your soul blesses me. His father says, who are you? He says, I'm your oldest son, Esau. Yitzchak begins trembling and says, who is the man who brought the food and I ate everything and I blessed, let him be blessed. Kishmoya Esau is divrei oviv, ayitzak tsa'oka g'doilo mora adma oid v'yoymela oviv, barcheni gam oni ovi. When Esav hears these words, he screams out with a loud, bitter cry, excessively. He tells his father, bless me too. And he says, your brother deceived you. And he stole, he took your blessing. And he says, ah, this is what his name is. It's been the story of my life. He has never stopped. He stole my birthright, and now he stole my blessing. And he says, but you said you have a blessing for me. And he says, I can't. I gave him all the blessings. And Esau says, Father, do you have only one bracha? Bless me too. Vayisa Esau koiloi vayevk. And Esau lifts up his voice and he weeps. And a sensitive person also weeps together with Esau. And then the Torah says, Esau hates Yaakov and he wants to kill him. Okay. Who doesn't want to kill their brother? You know any Jew who doesn't want to kill their brother? It never says that he kills him. It says he wants to kill him. Shine. There's no people you want to kill. I hear every day from people, I wish I could kill him. Shine. That turns you into the most wicked person in the world. Everybody has a brother or this that they want to kill. He never killed him. He wants to kill him. Shine. And that's the end of the parsha. Texts. We're learning texts. You don't even know that the text doesn't say that Esau was a murderer. It doesn't say it once. Not a murderer, not bad, not vicious, not a rapist, not a violent. I know Rashi. I know all the Mamari Chazal. That's not my point. I know it. <laughs> I know the Medrash. I know the Gemara. I know Rashi. I know. I know how we learn. I want to point out, does anybody realize that the text goes out of its way to make you sympathize with Esau much more than Yaakov? At the end of this parasha, if you knew nothing... Your heart is with Esau, not with Yaakov. On the contrary. Yaakov is very sophisticated. Esau is simple. Yaakov outsmarts him. Esau is hungry. <laughs> he hunts and he loves his father. All we know about Esau is that he denigrated the birthright and that he wanted to kill his brother. Okay. It's the end of the world. Come Chazal and they tell you a different Esau. It's almost a tale of two Esau's. The kid was a murderer, he trapped women. He was a... What's going on here? I'm not doubting that the Chazal had a tradition, what Esau did. That's not my question. My question is, why does the text completely ignore that Esau? Maratzchius says it was for educational purposes. Meaning, the Chazal felt that you could have to educate children with clear boundaries. 
and if they would extol Esav, <laughs> the boundaries between Yaakov and Esav would become very blurry, and it wouldn't be black and white. So they painted Esav in black, and Yaakov in white. The Balatanya doesn't have that shitta. Yibichlal doesn't have that shitta. It's a very different shitta. Maharatz Chiyos. He feels Chazal for educational purposes. For educational purposes, they painted Ace of Black, Yaakov White, and it keeps things simpler. Ace of is Arash Marusha, Yaakov is Atzadik, it's perfect. No, no, he was. But the, even though the text brings out other stuff about Esav, the Chazal went very strongly, you know, don't empathize with Esav. He's a Ritzeach, he's a Sheifich Domim, he's this. Right. But he says that's why the Chazal went to that extreme. For Toyelis Chinuchis, for an educational benefit, right? Like everybody grew up in Cheder. What was Esav? Anusha the worst of the worst. Of course Rivka was right. A guy like him, you steal everything he has. Birthright, whatever you can. It's a, pity, it's a pity you didn't abort him. Almost, right? We learned Vayokem, Vayelech, yeah? You remember Vayokhaled Yigetsin on Yachalke, Vayesh on Abrocha, Vayokem on Benshin, Vayelech on Kushin de Mezuzah. You learned that? Now, this is a mini gistol. I'm not this, but it doesn't say in the text. I understand my point here. My point is not to cast doubt on Teir Shabal Pechalila. My point is to be sensitive to Teir Shabal To understand why the text was written in such a different way. If Chazal Mu'esav was a murderer, God also knew he was a murderer. Not only they. Moshe also knew. And the Torah is not busy mincing words about bad people. We have plenty of stories. We know what the what the Mabel was, Kimala Haaretz, Hamas, etc. Huh? Okay, Lovan Arami. Also, Nochamais, Nochaparsh. That's the next Mimer. <laughs> so here, the Balatanya is going to really open up, open us up to to the world of Esau. The world of Esau is a complicated world. It's not so simple. There's a reason the text eliminates everything. Because the Torah wants you to identify, we're going to discover really, I would define this Mimer as a tale of two Esau's. There's two Esau's. Of course, it's one Esau. But like every person, there's no one person. There's more than one person. How many people hang out in your brain? Depends on the minute, right? Or on the hour, yeah. They say the definition of chutzpah is somebody who goes to a psychiatrist because he has a split personality and then he wants a group discount. Oh, there's a tale of two Aesops. The Torah specifically doesn't say all these stories because it wants you to understand there's Aesop and there's Aesop. To put it in different words, the way we're trained, and this is what you'll see, that without this, really, it reaches levels that are not so simple in terms of a moon even. We call Yitzchak a tzaddik, 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 tzaddik. How in the world do you fool a tzaddik so badly? And this is where it comes to another situation, and that is, could you be stupid and still be a tzaddik? It seems like many people believe that, right? Couldn't a person be a fool and be a tzaddik? I ask you. You know your child. Yitzchak didn't know his son. 
Rifkin knew and Yitzchak didn't. On one hand, we call him one of the others. Sadik Mamish. We put him on a pedestal. But then his son comes home and says, Tate, how do you give Maisa from straw? Wow, unbelievable. He's blown away. And Rivka never had a conversation with Yitzchak. Why'd they never sit by supper? What does your wife do with you? She sits you down once a day and starts preaching about all the children. I mean, that's what, right? You don't understand this. You don't understand this. They need this. Why didn't Rivka sit down with Yitzchak and tell him what she thought? Never. They never had one conversation about Esau. Do you really think that if Yitzchak was one of the others, his son can just deceive him and trap him because of asking him some questions? Even people sitting in this room, questions of your child would probably not deceive you. <laughs> you see a person. You see a person not only from their questions, you see who they are. Yitzchak was completely in La La Land, and yet we respect him as one of the others. So that's a real question. If somebody is completely in La La Land and his Gaboyim deceive him, is he such a tzaddik? I'm just wondering, how does that work? I would think that the first prerequisite for a tzaddik is somebody who's in touch with God's reality. And if the whole, everything is manipulation, there's something very off about that. You can't trust such people. If Yitzchak has such wrong judgment with his son, how do you trust him about anything? He can't figure out what's happening in his own house. He's supposed to know what's happening on the other side of the world. But we don't ask these questions. We say Yitzchak was fooled, 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 but he's still completely holy. How could you be completely holy and be so deceived? Because holiness for us is detached from reality, so it works, actually. The holier you are, the more deceived you are, and it works. Because holiness for us is somebody who's, you know, half blind, half deaf, half dumb, half in heaven, half crippled, half crushed, half depressed. And that's what makes you holy. But that's because holiness is not connected to reality, so that's a tragedy. So that's another very important uh, thing. These questions are not simple questions. And he really wants to know, Yitzchak is fooled or not fooled? Is he a naive person or is he not a naive person? Is he just a guy and his son? You know, Yitzchak sits like this a whole day like this, <laughs> right? Can't see anything. He sits with the Maram Shif a whole day with small letters. And Esav used to come in, yeah? And say, Tata, how do you give Maisef a melach, yeah? And Esav would look up and say, Psss, mwah. And then he said, here's dinner, and he would give him delicious dinner, and Yitzchak was in the seventh heaven. I don't know, would you respect that so much? Is that like the image of the others? I don't know, I think there's something off about it. So these are background, I'm giving you background material to understand the, the, the context in which he introduces Esau here. And what he's really going to explain, of course, is not that Esau was a tzaddik, he was not. Esau ultimately led a, uh, an immoral life, as Chazal say, as Toyo Shabal says. They didn't invent a story about Esau. They had a tradition about what Esau did. And the Nevi'im confirmed that, not in this parsha, but in the Nevi'im, the Haftaris, if you read the Haftaris. It's fascinating <laughs> that even at the end, when Yaakov comes home after 20 years, he's told that Esau wants to kill you, and he prepares, and then when he actually meets Esau, all Esau does is he kisses him and hugs him and embraces him. So even when we're predicting that Esau is actually going to be the worst kid, he turns out to be a very nice guy. And he says, hey, let's live together. And Yaakov is the one who says, I'm not, I'm not setting up, I'm not going to live with you. 
It's also in, at the end of the story too, and they separate very nicely. So this big monster, Esau, turns out to be a very sensitive child. And he cries a lot. He cries a lot. And he really seems like he gets this sour deal. And he has this mother, you know, who's like, uh, who's really, really just, she has something with this kid. Right? Like sometimes this mother just doesn't like a kid. <laughs> and, and, and Yitzchak like loves it. So what's Pshat? What's Pshat? So this is a deep mime. It's not a, it's not a simple mime. It's a very deep mime. And he describes Ace of here from a very spiritual point of view, from a spiritual point of view. And he's basically going to describe the energy of Esav. The energy of Esav is not a simple energy to understand. Yitzchak was not naive. Yitzchak understood Esav better than everybody else. Yitzchak loved Esav because he saw in Esav what other people couldn't see, not because he was fooled. Yitzchak had a keen sensitivity that others did not have. And while they wrote off Esau, because it was easy to write him off, Yitzchak would not write him off. That's the story here. And because of that, Yitzchak loved Esau. And that's how he's going to reconcile his contradictions. He knew that Esau doesn't mention God's name. He, of heart, you see, he wasn't full. Which is, of course, why even the pshat of the Pasuk leads to this mimer. Because Rashi himself has a contradiction. Like he says, first Rashi says he fooled him, then he says he didn't fool him. He knew everything about Esau. He knew exactly Yaakov is the one who's busy with God, and Esau doesn't mention God's name. Boom, he mentions God once, it's strange. This big from Esau doesn't mention Hashem. How from is he? The word Baruch Hashem, he won't say. Mitz Hashem, he won't say. Hikra Hashem, he won't say. So even the Pshat already points to that. That's why he opens up with questions, I'll be Pshat to show that there's a paradox here in the text and in Chazal that one has to explore, one has to understand. So let's begin the, the answer. It's not going to be the whole elaborate answer, but we'll begin the first few lines. Achainian, the Indian is, he's going to say some funny words here that have to be explained. Esav is susvise de dava. This is a term from Zohar. Susvitsa is the Aramaic word for psoilus, like you have in the, word, the halakas of Bayer, oichel and psoilus, food and waste. Susvitsa is psoilus. Dava in Aramaic is gold. Dalit and Zion are interchangeable. Zohav is dav. Psoilus hagvure de Yitzchak. Esav comes from Yitzchak. It's the psoilus, the residue. The word here is not waste, but residue of the gvure of Yitzchak. Shulpchinus mailus azov alakasa. It's the distinction between gold and silver. Kesef, Avram, is associated with Kesef. Zahav, gold, the color of fire, is associated with Gvura. Kesef means Kisufim, Nichsoif, Nichsafti, yearning, craving, pining. Zahav is the color of, uh, closer to the color of fire, intensity. It has a glitter that is, makes it more expensive than, usually than silver. That's Yitzchak. Umipsoilus shaloi yotza esav. From the residue of this gold emerges Esav. The head of Esav ends up in the bosom of Yitzchak. This is an expression of Targum Yonis and Benazir. The Gemara says in Saita that Esav was buried the same day like Yaakov, right? Esav was killed by the Maris al-Machpelah, famous Gemara in Saita, by Chushim ben Don, and his head, he was beheaded, and his head rolled and ended up in the grave of his father Yitzchak. His head is in the bosom of Yitzchak, which is a very interesting thing. 
because the halach in Shulchan Aruch is Ein Koivrin Tzadik Eitzel Rosh. You don't bury a Tzadik near a Rosh. And here, forever, for thousands of years, not forever, but for thousands of years, Yitzchak and Eitzel are mamish together. Not only near each other, but literally in the same plot. So how does that work? Yitzchak together with Esav. He's the big Russia, he's a big tzaddik, even though they're, of course, father and son, but still, tzaddik and Russia. This point is going to be that the head of Esav was detached from the body of Esav. Spiritually, it means that the tragedy of Esav is that he was not connected with his own head. In other words, there's Esav in his head, there's Esav in his source, there's Esav in his brain, there's Esav in his potential, and then there's Esav in his body. One of the greatest problems in life is when there's no unison between the head and the body, between uh, your potential, between your origin, between your central nervous system and how things are implemented. There's a disconnect. And that's what happens to Esau. But the head of Esau belongs with, with Yitzchak. The head of Esau, we don't call it Russia. The head of Esau goes to Itvide Yitzchak. And that's why, ultimately, we have to discover what is the story about Esau. He's deeply connected to Yitzchak. He is part of his gold, but he's called Susfisa the Dava, the Psoilus of the Zav. So he says, Ullahovin in Yenresh, to understand the head, the head of Asa. He changes now the subject completely. He's going to come back to Asa later. Every morning we say, Tonu Rabonon. You remember? Pitu Maktairis. Right? The system in the Beis HaMikdash was as follows. They took 11 herbs, 11 herbs, which all had unique qualities to them. These 11 herbs are called Tsari, Tsipoyrin, Chelbena. We say it every morning. Tsari, Chelbena, Levoyna, Moir, Ktsia, right? You remember? Shiboilis Nerd, Charkoim, Koisht. Kilufa, Kinamain, we go through all the 11, what's called frankens, uh, uh, spices, herbs. They would grind them into a powder. And every sing- and they had a lot of it in the Beis HaMikdash. And every single morning and an afternoon in the dusk, they would place these herbs, this powder, on the glowing, burning coals on the Mizbeach, the inner, the golden altar, in the, the golden altar, not the copper one, in the Beis HaMikdash. And the, the combination between the herbs and the flame and the coals would create and generate a tremendous aroma that would fill up the whole Beisamiktash and travel far and beyond. The aroma, the smell was extraordinary. Every single day in the Beisamiktash, this was the Avaidus Akhtaritis, burning the incense. Yom Kippur, it was done in the Holy of Holies. Every day it was done right outside in the Eichel by the Mizbeach. 11 herbs, not 10, not, not, not 12, 11 herbs. And you had to know exactly which herb. It was a whole avoid, avoid And we say it every day in the Karbonas before davening. And according to many Nuschayas, not Ashkenaz, you say it after davening as well, right before Leno. You say it twice. Ashkenazim don't because uh, it's a serious issue because in Chisar Echen Mekol Samamana, Chayiv Misa. And therefore, they're very makbit to be makbit. You have to say each one and be 
attentive to it, not to miss any, and that's why they don't want to do it again, because it's enough one time to be careful, and twice is a little harder. That's the reason they deleted it from the end of Davani. But uh, in many Nuskhayas, it's said also at the end of Davani. What's interesting here is the number 11. Usually, in Kedushin, Yiddishkeit 10 seems like the wholesome number. Right? 10 is a minion. There's the 10 spheres that we speak about, the 10 koiches of the soul, chachma, bina, das, chesed, word, tefers, etc. Here, it's dafka, the number 11, not 10. And this has to do with the unique contribution of k'tayrus, which has to do with the unique element of smell, which is why when Esav comes into Yitzchak's chamber, Yitzchak says, the smell of my son is like the smell of the field that God blessed. In other words, it's associated with the reich of the k'tayrus, which is number 11 and not number 10. And it's the number 11 of the Ktoiris that is the introduction to understand the story of Esau, the unique reyach of Esau that Yitzchak understood and appreciated in him, which allows us then to understand the paradox in the world of Esau between the text and the Chazal, between Tereshav B'Ksav and Tereshav and even Yitzchak himself, where on one hand you say he loves Esau, and he, he sees... He sees Esav as an extraordinary person, and yet he knows very well that he's not like Yaakov. So we'll continue inside. The line starts Esav, page, uh, page 39. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Nine lines from the beginning of the Maimir A. Esav, Reisha, the Esav, Beitfi, the Reisha. We learned the head of Yitz of Esav was buried in the bosom of his father Yitzchak. And that remains that way. Esav is buried with Yitzchak, his head, not his body. To understand what this head is. As mentioned, there were 11 herbs that were harvested, grounded, grinded into a powder and used daily in the burning of these herbs, of these incenses in the Beis HaMikdash. Hatsari, Vatsipayr, and Chuli, the list goes on. As we mentioned, you have Tsari, and you have Tsipayr, and you have Chelbana, you have Lavoina, you have Meir, you have Ktsia, Tsari, Tsipayr, and Chelbana, Lavoina, five is Meir, six is Ktsia, Shabayl is Nerd is seven, Charkim is eight, Kaish is 9, Kilufa is 10, Kinamain is 11. Each one is a separate herb. And uh, I think in, uh, in the, there's a place in Yerushalayim, what is it called? Machen Hamikdash. So they have on display the various uh, herbs and the powders that were used for the Ketoiris. And each one came in a different measurement. It had to be an exact compound. So as the Braisa goes through, we say it in the morning. 70 mana, whatever it is, everyone had its own unique weight, volume and weight, and uh, that made the unique compound of the mixture that allowed the Ktoiris to generate a particular type of aroma every single day. So you have 11 herbs. Tzari v'tzipayim. Keneged. Now is going to be a little bit of a mystical shtickle. Employing a lot of terms from Pnimius Atayda from Nister, but it will be understood. Just I'm telling you, the terms here are going to be a little complicated. Yud de The eleven herbs correspond to what's called the ten crowns of impurity. 
Mesa'avus in Aramaic is Tumah. Yud Kisran is ten crowns of impurity. Shahu hachayiz shabikdusha hamachaya ezel umazah. It represents the chiyus, the vitality of holiness, which gives vitality to everything in the world. <coughs> holiness and also unholiness. Everything gets chayiz from kedusha. K'moshi yash b'kedusha yud sviris. K'ach yash mamash b'klipa arim yud sviris d'kedusha. So whatever exists in kedusha will also exist in unholiness because everything gets its chiyus from Hashem, which is kedusha. So if in kedusha we have a structure of ten, Known as the ten spheres, Chachma, Bina, Das, Chesed, Gvurit, Tiferes, Netzach, Soid, Malchus, which are the ten characteristics that Hashem identified within Himself, through which He creates, sustains, and relates to the universe. Or to put it differently, the entire universe and all of the universes are made up of ten building blocks, ten spiritual building blocks. The ten spiritual building blocks are the ten energies, the ten characteristics known as the ten spheres. Spheres comes from the word uh, Evan Sapir, sapphire stone, which is light. It's a luminescent stone. It's ten lights. So it's ten lights, ten forms of energy, which are the building blocks of the universe, and it's also the building blocks of the soul. The soul is also made up of ten faculties. You have your Chachma, your Bina, your Das, your Chesed. The human is in the image of Hashem. Kivayachal Hashem identifies within himself ten characteristics. Hashem's Chachma, Hashem's Bina, Hashem's Das, Hashem's Gvura, Hashem's Tiferes, Hashem's Malchus. Right? We learned in, uh, in Noyach about what Tiferes is. We learned about Chesed. We learned about Gvura. We learned about Malchus once. We learned about Chachma, Bina. These are ten different characteristics which are really the forms of energy that make up the entire universe and every creature and every person and every soul and every body and every existence. Ultimately, these are the building blocks of the universe. So if that exists in Kedusha, it has to also exist in not Kedusha, which gets its chiyos from Kedusha. So those ten exist, that's why there's ten yud kisra de besavos, the ten crowns of impurity. Ah, but here there's eleven. You said there's eleven, not ten. But in Kedusha, it's ten. Not nine and not eleven. That's an expression in Sefer Yitzir, which is the earliest Kabbalistic text. Text. Ten, not nine. Ten, not eleven. When it comes to Ketoris, we have eleven herbs. Dafke eleven, not ten. Why? Because here there's another one, an extra one. Now that would seem a little strange. Everything gets its chiyas from Kedusha. In Kedusha you stick, it, you stick by ten. But here when it comes to unholiness, you introduce chapter 11. <laughs> you introduce uh, uh, the quality of number 11, what that represents. What is the Indian here? This says, this is a known idea in Kabbalah, Kedusha is Yud, and Klip is Yud Aleph. And the herbs were dealing with unholiness. They were trying to confirm. It doesn't mean that the Ketoris was Tumach, Chas was an avoid in the Beis HaMikdash. It means the Ketoris was dealing with unholiness. And therefore, you got to beat fire with fire. It comes with 11 spices, with 11 herbs. So he says, the Inyan is, this is all to explain how Yitzchok viewed of the head of Esau. Here he introduces a theme, which is the major one of the major themes in this mind. Whenever you have chius, vitality that comes into kedusha, in other words, 
vitality that reflects holiness, he makes if the klal is always it's made up of four things, of four words. We say it in the morning, Atu, it's very powerful words over there, that section of davening. Atu, Hashem Levadecha. Atu, Sisas Hashemayim, Shmei Hashemayim, Chotvam Aretz V'chalasher Elo, Ayamim V'chalashabem. Va'ato, Mechaye Eskula. You give life to everything. There's nothing in the world that does not get life from you, that does not get chius from you. Atu, Mechaye Eskula. Everything gets life from you. In other words, everything is a reflection of you. Everyone gets life from you. But the legions of heaven prostrate themselves to you. That's a difference. I can get life from you, but I don't prostrate myself to you. I don't bow to you. I don't have a relationship to you. I get everything from you, but I don't even know you exist. That's the key difference between Kedusha and not Kedusha. Kedusha is in a conscious relationship with God. Klipa is also in a relationship with God. You can't not be in a relationship with God. Because the moment you're not in a relationship with God, what happens? <laughs> you don't exist. The very existence, however you define yourself, is divine. A relationship with God is not a conscious experience. It's reality. Reality is a relationship with Hashem. That's what makes it real. That's what makes it existence. It's divine energy. The difference then is consciousness. There's no such a thing a person is not in a relationship with Hashem. You're always in a relationship. In fact, even if your thoughts are filled with hate to God, that is also a relationship with God. Because the only ability to be able to have these thoughts are from Hashem. It's the divine energy that's allowing you to deny God. So even the atheist who walks around 90 years uh, holding debates on YouTube that there's no God, that very uh, capability, the energy that's fueling his brain and his consciousness to be able to explain that there's no God, that is divine. That's, of course, the paradox of Klippa. That's the paradox of Klippa. It's the mystique of Klippa. It's the tragedy of Klippa. The word Klippa means a shell. What's the concept of a shell? You have a banana shell, or you have the shell of an egois of, let's say, a walnut, right, or hazelnut. So the shell of a walnut, you look at the shell, you don't see the nut. The nut is there, but it eclipses what is inside of it. The definition is important. Is that you, you've heard many times, some of you grew up with the term, some not. Klippa, 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 klippa. This is klippa, klippa, klippa. What's klippa? Klippa is a very sophisticated idea. Klippa means a shell. It's a very elegant way of describing something that, for it to exist there has to be a cover-up. For it to exist, there has to be a cover-up. If there's no cover-up, it loses its identity. If there is no cover-up, it ceases to be. I thrive only because there's a cover-up. The moment everything is exposed, you're not around. So now you have to ask yourself a question. How much of your life Okay, think about this, thrives because there's a cover-up. And if there's no cover-up, if everything is exposed, it ceases to exist. How much of a person's life exists because it exists? And even if there was no cover-up at all, it would still exist, and maybe even more. <laughs> and how much of a person's life only exists because there's shells? 
And the moment you remove cover-ups, it loses its identity. An example for what? Where do you hear people using it all the time? Here, here. Clippus? And they're not referring to banana peels. I never heard that word growing up. No, no, I know you didn't hear the word growing up. It's, 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 it's. Anybody here who heard the word growing up? Sure. You, you guys heard the word growing up a lot, yeah? You, a lot? And what, <laughs> too much, <laughs> too much. And what was it associated with usually? Huh? Illusory is a good word. Illusory is a very good word. A loser. <laughs> illusory means you create a reality based on something that's not real, like an illusion. Illusory is better than imagine, because imagine is, is a nice thing to imagine. Imagine it. Illusory means you create a reality from something that's not really substantial. Now, when we say not really substantial, it doesn't mean it doesn't have power. It can have a lot of power, but it's not really powerful. It doesn't have true, enduring power. For example, Bernie Madoff, right? His business was a big clipper. What do I mean? There was nothing under it. That's what a Ponzi scheme is. Yeah, You have a mice of... Uh, you're dealing with billions and billions and billions of dollars in concept. People are giving you money, and every year they're making millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, and they're very happy. <laughs> but it's all luft. It's all a shell. A shell means it's presented a certain way, but if you crack the shell, there's nothing inside of it. There's no substance. There's no toichius. It doesn't mean it's not powerful. It doesn't mean it can go on for 50 years, and maybe it can go on for 500 years, and it can go on, and it could affect, and it can have power too. But its power is coming from something that's really powerless. To put it in simple terms, if all the data was exposed, if all the books were open, if there was no concealment whatsoever, what remains of the product? Something that's clipper is something that if the data was exposed, and the books were opened, and all information was revealed, it would fade away into oblivion because you would see that there's nothing there. Sometimes a clip is necessary. Sometimes it could be a positive aspect. Not always. Right? If there's a marital conflict, so the Gemara tells us you're allowed to change sometimes, and cover up or manipulate some facts for peace. Why? Because people are weak. And sometimes if they hear the whole truth, they'll just break. So you sometimes have to sugarcoat reality in order to help people grow up. That's part of a klipa, but that's where the klipa is being productive. It's conscious, it's deliberate. You can't always tell somebody exactly what you think about them. Probably in most cases you shouldn't. I should have. Huh? A shidduch, yeah. The Nebuchadnezzar says, Shatchin is Roshetev, is Sheker Dover, Kesef Neutel. Says lies and takes money. 
It has to be that way, yeah. There's a maimah from the Balatanya, Lahavin Hatam Sheroiva Shidduchim Nigmarama Yideh Sheker. That's how he starts the maimah. To understand the reason most Shidduchim only happen through lies. Agansa maimah, huh? In other words, but you have to always be careful with clipper. Because how deep, how thick, and the worst is when you decide that clipper becomes the emes. And then, uh, then you lose it. Now, Kedusha is the exact opposite. <coughs> the definition of Kedusha is that if all the shells are removed, it remains completely intact. Why? Because its power of existence comes from truth, not from illusion, uh, not from, uh, not from illusion. illusions, illusory truth, which is what a shell means. Now, when you have, why did Hashem make that so many fruits and vegetables and grain grow with shells? The shells protect it. Because during the winter, the rain and the storms and the winds, or during the summer, the scorching heat, would destroy the actual core fruit or vegetable or kernel. It's the chaff, it's the stalks, it's the crowns, it's the husks that eclipse it and protect it and cover it. That's the real role of clipper. Yes, of course. That's my idea. The challenge is, right, when there's nothing but the klippa. Klippa kaidem lepriya. That's Aesop. In our context, yeah. Yeah. Now, now, clippers themselves have a lot of different categories, meaning there are translucent shells and there are eclipsing shells. I should say there are transparent shells, there are translucent shells, and there are eclipsing shells. Meaning, there are hot, you look at a grape, it also has a little shell, but you could see the grape. You look at a walnut, you can't see the nut at all. So clipper itself, it could be transparent, you could see the pneumias through it, sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's very thick, and sometimes it's very hard to crack. You really need a cracker to get through to it, but it's very difficult. So those are all layers of shells and husks of how deep, how powerful, how dense. Take, for example, the communist regime. It went for 70 years, right? It started around 1920 till 1990, 1989. started with Lenin and went till Gorbachev. It murdered 50 million people. That's called power. It controlled a major part of the world, and it defined modern history to a significant degree. It was all based on what? One word? Lies. Lies. In other words, the whole regime was one big clipper. All based on... The moment everything would be open, what would happen to it? It would would fall apart. And that's what happened. it, It didn't fall... Usually... Such regimes fall apart through war. Yeah. It just, what happened? 1989, nobody knew what happened. One morning, well, they woke up, it fell. The mightiest regime, one of the mightiest regimes in history, and one of the mightiest uh, super, uh, superpower, it just disintegrated. Nobody even knew what happened. 70 years of lies corroded it from within. He didn't need, no, there was not a... Sh- uh, uh, I remember the Lubavitcher Rebbe spoke then at a Fabrengen, who was told this, 1989, and he said that throughout history, there was not one revolution of such magnitude that happened without a single bullet shot. Never. The French Revolution, the French Revolution, how many, how many people murdered in the guillotine? Any revolution. 
such a revolution, communism, should fall without a bullet, one without one victim? He said it was, it was an incredible historical phenomenon. What happened? The corrosion from within, you know, you rot and rot and rot and rot and rot, the worms fill up more and more, and then, boom, the clipper plots us. The clipper just plots us, it's too much, too many lies. It happens to people. It happens to it happens to addicts, huh? Cancer, addiction. People could be addicts for years. You could live on credit cards for three years. right? Three years only. You don't have a penny, but credit cards. But you're living on somebody else's credit. That's that's a form of clipper. You're living on somebody else's. It's not real. It's not substance. It's what happened to the mortgage industry. What happened by the crash here of the economy? Instead, when people create lives that don't exist. People create facades. It exists on every level. Psychological, emotional, social, spiritual. What's it called with the Jones? Uh, Keeping, up. Huh? Keeping, up Keeping up with the Jones is another example. Addiction. You can't be an addict without lying. It's just impossible. If you were ever an addict, you know it's all lies. It's just endless lies. You lie to everybody. first person you lie is to your family. The first person you lie is to yourself. The next people you lie to your family, of course, to your life, to your kids. You just lie, and then you lie to the world. It's just impossible. You can't maintain. Why do you miss the birthday party? Oh, I was in a car accident. Why do you miss your mother's funeral? Oh, I almost died. Uh, why do you miss the chasana of your brother, right? I'm not going to say I was drugged up somewhere in Las Vegas. I'm going to say uh, Netanyahu called me. There was an emergency. I had to go serve in Sahal in Gaza, whatever. It just doesn't end up. It just, just doesn't stop. Everything. Huh? What? Mossad? I'm in the Mossad, yeah. Whatever it is, and then at some point, at some point, hopefully, you plot. What are you plots from? Sometimes you put in jail, sometimes you hit rock bottom, sometimes you lose your whole family. And it all, it's just, it's too much. It, it, it rotted so many years, there's nothing left. Sometimes not. Sometimes not, yes. Sometimes you die. Sometimes your brain gets so fried that you don't know you know we know it's fried. Yeah, we know this. It's tragic, yeah. It's not so extreme. It's popular culture. It's it's the very nature of our existence. Very good. It's wonderful. It's not so extreme, it's popular culture, yes. Yes, granted you know now, people who live without clippers, people who live without clippers, we have a name for them. They're called Meshuggah. We can't deal with it. Imagine somebody would get up and speak the whole truth. In any situation, you know what it would look like? People would not like it. People would not like it. Because this is what we call it etiquette. <laughs> but it's not really always etiquette. There's an element of, of, of lies that sustain social... Um, Norms. Social norms. Social norms. There's people who consider themselves antisocial. I don't know if anybody in this room, I know some, but people, and sometimes they blame themselves for being antisocial. But the truth is that it's not that way. It's sometimes because they're more sensitive to truth. They're more sensitive to truth. It doesn't mean it's not a challenge when you're antisocial. That means every bar mitzvah is a nightmare and every chasana you would rather kill yourself and then every shavabrach and every lechaim and every vort you have to go in and, and speak to people that you don't care about you, you don't care about them for, for an hour and a half about things you both don't care about. <laughs> That's a very painful existence. Now, some people don't blink. They just don't blink. Either they're social creatures 
Well, they sometimes love people. You know, they, they converse with a mailman for an hour or two. They become best friends with the guy in the gas station, which is beautiful. They have a certain... Sometimes it's a very deep line. Some people are not like that. And you have to work out your life. You have to work out your life, especially if you have a big mishpach and you're always going to simchas. You've got to figure out a way to do it. Societies, I'm not going to say society is lies, but a lot of conversations are superficial. What does superficial mean? Superficial means you want to make it look good. And the substance matters less than what what is uh, what is projected. What do you mean? Well, there's something called Kavod HaTzibur, there's something called Avas Abriyas, there's something called Atifrish Mayim. Ignoring the bad or finding the good is the difference between the... A younger man called me, he wants to invite somebody for Shabbos to his house, because he used to be a chavar of his yeshiva, but he left Yiddishkeit. But uh, he's embarrassed that if he invites him in his community, the community will uh, make fun of him. So he asked me, what is he supposed to do? Should he not invite this person for Shabbos so the community would accept him? Or he should invite him for Shabbos because uh, that's the right thing to do. So I told him, you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> you're not going to get a very objective answer from me about this. But uh, this was his question. What was his question? Huh? He grew up with somebody in yeshiva. The person left Yiddishkeit. He wants to invite him for Shabbos. But his neighbors are going to see that he's inviting this person for Shabbos. And therefore, they're going to be very critical of him. And he's embarrassed. So he asked me, what's the right thing to do? So I told him, what do you think the right thing to do? He says, the right thing is to invite him. So I said, so what's the question? The question is, do you do the right thing or do you do... But, but this is a, it's a general struggle in a person's life. So Klippa can exist on endless, endless levels and examples. But the principle is always the same. There's reality, and part of reality or all of reality is being covered up, and that's how you function. And if there wouldn't be cover-ups... You would not be able. You would not be able to function in the way you did because so much of your reality is based on something that doesn't really exist. It just is hiding existence. Therefore, when you speak about ultimate reality, or you speak about in ultimate terms of kedusha and klipa, the question is this: Whenever you have a thought, or you say a word, or you do something that even if all data was revealed, you would still do it, or think it, or say it. That's Kedusha. That's the parameter of Kedusha. You think a thought, you say a word, or you do something, that even if all data would be revealed, and there would be no cover-ups whatsoever, it would still be compelling. It would still be appealing. That's always Kedusha. If it's a thought, or a word, or an action, that's for to justify it, you have to cover up truth to yourself, that means it's something that is from the world of Kedusha. So let's give a very simple example uh, in terms of food, right? My favorite examples, cheesecake. Very good, you're getting the hang of it. Slowly you'll develop a taste. Slowly you'll develop a taste, and I'll develop a taste for lettuce. <laughs> so there's a piece of cheesecake. You go into a bris, there's a piece of cheesecake, right? It looks perfect. It looks wonderful, okay? I want to eat it. I shouldn't eat it because it's not good for me, right? But... 
I may eat it. Why will I eat it? Imagine, imagine that the cheesecake displayed what it really is doing to the body. Or imagine the cigarette, right, showed you everything. Then you'd like, eh. But the cheesecake doesn't do that. When you look at the cheesecake, the cheesecake says, I'm your best friend. We're in love. I will be the best thing for you right now. You really want me in your mouth. I am the man. And I am the person who will nourish you and sustain you. And we fall prey to it. That's a very classic, simple, basic example of falling prey to the clipping. You eat it, or I eat it, and 20 minutes later I'm in a bad mood. (laughs) Because the sugar and the carbs and all the other good ingredients that are there. But that's later. So it's like, oh, now it exposed its true colors. Of course, it doesn't stop me the next day because the glitter is too powerful. Generally, all commercials work this way, all ads, all displays that invite you into them. But if all data was revealed, of course you wouldn't take it. It's poisonous. But the poison is eclipsed by beautiful, beautiful husks and beautiful shells. The same is true with a relationship that you have or something that you're doing, or something that you're saying, or something that you're thinking. Any thought that is taking you somewhere, but those thoughts are based on cover-ups. And if all reality was revealed, they wouldn't have legitimacy. That means you're following Clipper. If it's a thought that even if all the data was revealed, it's still intact, that means Kedusha. Why? So here is the Yisait. Reality is the divine. The divine is reality. That's reality. That is existence. Anything that if the divine was present, that those thoughts would continue, those words would continue, those actions would continue, that's by definition Kedusha. Any thought or word or action that has to conceal the divine in order for it to have power, that's based on Klippa. The concealment is only by himself, not about other people. It starts with yourself. Sometimes it could be by me, myself. Sometimes it could be for other people, not for me. Sometimes it could be for all of us. Of course, the first one is yourself, always. The first one is yourself. So that's why, Va'ata mechayes kulam, Botzva ha-shamayim l'cham ishtachavim. They bow. They, they, there's always a relationship. We go back to what we started with. There's no such a thing you're not in a relationship with God. Not a relationship with God means you're not in existence. You're not reality. If you're reality, you're in a relationship. The question is not if you're in a relationship. The question is how conscious are you of it? How cognizant are you of it? So if I'm, for example, having thoughts, and the thoughts tell me I'm hopeless, I'm bored, I'm worthless, I'm insignificant, uh, God hates me, uh, my life is purposeless, uh, all these types of thoughts, those are called clipper thoughts. Why? If all the data was revealed, if all the shells were gone, you would see that God is involved with you right now, this moment, creating you something from nothing. He's as close with you as as much as possible. There's no closeness that's deeper than that closeness. But I'm in a different space. In other words, my thoughts are being dominated by clip. All thoughts that are addictive, all thoughts that are feeding different forms of reality into me, Forms are? Of course. That's what it means. All clippy, essentially, is illusory. What's a lie? What do you think is a lie? I mean, what's your question? Somebody 
the Bhershalas Trapolo was once confronted by somebody and he said, If you tell me a lie, right now I'll give you a ruble. He said, You said you'll give me two. <laughs> What's your Shiloh? What's the lie? If a person thinks they're worthless, it's one of the greatest lies of existence. How do you define a lie? If you did something bad, so the lie, the, the absence of lies that I did something bad, but that I'm worthless, that's a lie. In fact, if I was l- worthless, I couldn't do something bad. Worthless people do worthless things. <laughs> if I did something that was bad, it must be that I have worth. <laughs> no? <laughs> if it's really bad. Huh? It's the other way around. Right? Right? Yid came to Reb Nachman of Breslov and he said he destroyed, destroyed this, destroyed that, destroyed that. He says, if you believe that you could destroy, you got to believe that you could fix. It <laughs> doesn't work one way. So, Bemela, this is the Kalal. Whenever there is a consciousness of the relationship with the Divine, so then automatically there is a sense of closeness. Klippe also has a relationship. If not, it wouldn't exist. But there's no lechamish tachavim. Atam echayes kulam. Zvah shamayim lechamish tachavim. The world survives solely on truth. I mean, don't we need an important element to have klipa? Klipa Yes, of course. Part of survival is klipa, and sometimes the klipa is a help for the kedusha. Like I gave an example, you know. Is it, not, is it the ideal to live solely in the truth, or is that not really you know, my wife? No, you shouldn't tell other people's wives what they look, what they look like, even if they look very good. Especially, I have a practical question: How do you cut a swindler? With what? With a swindler. With a swindler, yeah. With a swindler. You have to swindle them. Yeah, yeah. Yaakov and Lavan. And Yaakov did it with Esavos. <coughs> Listen, you want to know, well, are you ready to live that way? Is this a theoretical question or a practical question? Let's say I tell you it's ideal. You're ready to live this way? How many people do you know are ready to live this way? Really, you're ready to live this way? Really? Negate everybody else is ready. Are you ready for people to tell that to you too, what they think? Okay, wow. Next time you want to ask you that question, properly. Didn't, didn't Churchill say that the truth is so important that we have to cover it with a hedge of lies? In times of war, truth is so precious, it has to be surrounded by bodyguards of lies. Winston Churchill. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Let's put it this way to Beliezer how much a person embraces this in their life, I don't know if that's a t- 10 second or, or one minute answer. But I think the first step is for people being aware of how much they're covering up and how much they're lying. I think awareness is the first step. 
In other words, for a person to be able to ask themselves and answer them this question, how many lies do I say a day? I don't mean colossal lies, you know, Fidel Castro and then, you know, level of lies. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, certain people who are, you know, mumchen. But uh, even gray, even what we call white lies, you know, uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, there's bumper-to-bumper traffic on Forche. Uh, I left 20 minutes ago, but <laughs> mom is stuck. I can't get through You're not stuck. It's 60 minutes, it's two minutes of traffic, and you know that you left 20 minutes late. You're not stuck, right? But people don't even acknowledge this, but this basically means I can't live with reality. I have to cover up reality. Why can't you say the truth I left late? Because you're going to look down at me, because you're going to be upset at me. So that means my relationship with you is based on a lie. It's not based on reality. People are always dislying to their spouses, to their... Dis- even if it's small lies, it basically means that the relationship is filled with cover-ups. So I think the first step is for a person to be aware of this. How many times a day do you say something that's not completely true? Maybe sometimes, the Gemara says, Mutter There's times, yeah? Hashem didn't tell Avram that uh, Sarah laughed, right? Why? He didn't say it. He didn't say it. Uh, I'm sorry, he didn't say that um, that Sarah said Vadoini Zokin. Why? So the Gemara said Mutalashan the Darkishal. Aaron used to meet people, right, who were in a fight. And uh, the Gemara, the mission, obviously, the Medr says obviously Reb Nosson, and he would say, "This fellow told me that he's upset that he's in a fight with you." But that did come from a conscious, deliberate place of strength, not from a place of weakness. And I think that's a key distinction: to really be aware of your relationships, of your interactions. How many times you cover up, when you cover up, why you cover up, with whom you cover up, and what's the reason you're doing it? Is it coming from a conscious, deliberate place of confidence and strength where if I tell this person everything I know about their, I think about them, they can have a... It's not... Sometimes MS, for the sake of MS, becomes selfish. I'll put it a little differently. When MS doesn't go through a filter always, it's a form of sheker. Sometimes unfiltered truth is a lie also. You know why? Because if it destroys a person, so that's a lie. I said the truth, I said the truth, I said the truth. Big deal, you're a narcissist. Truth is not about, I said the truth. Truth is about truth. If this person is going to be destroyed from this truth, if this marriage is going to be destroyed from this truth, so you said, I said the truth. It's a narcissistic truth. It's a selfish truth. It's not a divine truth. Sometimes truth has to be filtered in order to build the person up so there should be somebody to accept the truth. Is it truth to destroy somebody? Is that true? So Bemela... That's my point. This is, not, this is not coming from weakness and it's not coming from shame and it's not coming because I'm not ready for a real relationship. On the contrary... Coming from a deliberate, conscious sensitivity and action where a person understands how to present something. Even in a shir, do you want the teacher who may be a genius to teach the six, uh, the ten-year-old boys everything he knows about the Mishnah or the Gemara? What's going to happen to the shir? He gives only one percent of what he knows. Yeah, Very superficial. But that's exactly what he's supposed to do. Because he wants them to retain it. He doesn't want to overwhelm them. This is also true in every area of life. But this is very different 
then covering up truth because I'm afraid of what you're going to think of me, and then you can't enter into a relationship with anybody. Because you're not exposed, because you're completely living in, in cover-ups. That's a whole different reality than a person, on the contrary, who's being sensitive to what's being communicated. So this is a very, I think, important idea, person. Understand that. I think it's always the first step is awareness of what is going on. There's no question that if I'm saying 90 lies a day, it's not coming from consideration and sensitivity. It's coming because that's the life I'm paralyzed by, Right? These people who do it for consideration and sensitivity, yeah, you'll find it very seldom and very rare because I'm completely in control of it. When a person finds that most of their life, or even much of their life, or a nice significant amount of their life, they're just doing lip service to people, they don't mean what they say, they don't say what they mean, then it's a life of clip, it's a life of shells. You push it not living in a world of reality, not living in a world of truth. Sukkah of Lamed Beis Amid Beis. The Gemara says in Sukkah that a hados, anafets of this is a hados, right? Is a myrtle branch. So the Gemara says maybe it's a hirduf. It just says in Chumash that you have to use a branch that's wood, it's a twig, and it's avos. Uh, it's uh, it's plated, and it covers the, the the leaves cover the branch and it's plated. So how do you know it's it's a hados? It's a myrtle. Maybe it's a hirduf. Hirduf is an oleander, it's called in English. So the Gemara says, Abaye says, because Drache Hadar Chinoya. And the Hirduf is uh, prickly. Huh? It's thorns, yeah. Rav says, because it says, Ha'emes Vashalom Ahevu. You should love truth and peace. Rashi says that the oleander is poisonous. And since it's poisonous, Einoi Loi Emes Veloi Shalom. It's not truthful and it's not peaceful. L'chayr, I can understand why it's not peaceful. Why is it not truthful? Is the charaya that something that undermines peace is not only not peaceful, but it's also not emesdik. It's not emes. Why is it not emes? Because if it undermines peace, it may be truthful from a very narrow perspective. But from a larger perspective, it's not truthful. In other words, if I say something to a wife or to a husband, and as a result of that, I destroy their marriage, and it's completely true, but I did not promote peace. Did I say the truth or I didn't say the truth? I said the truth, but I also lied. You know why I lied? I'll tell you why I lied. Because deep down, does she want to stay married to her husband? Of course. I'm not talking about a case where she doesn't, where there's a horrible abuse or whatever. And deep down, does he want to stay married to her? Of course they want to stay married. You're making them believe that they don't want to stay married to each other, so that's your lie. In the name of truth, you lied. You said something truthful. But in the bigger picture, you lied because you're causing them to detach from their own truth. On the other hand, if I know about something and I present it in a way that can be constructive for their marriage, ultimately I said something truthful. You know why? Because I help them reach a state that's more in touch with their deeper truth without ignoring, without ignoring the flaws. Okay, today's sheet is dedicated... Leilu Nishmas Reb Chaim Ben Yosef Isaac, whose yard site is today. Let's continue here. Parshas told us. So last night, eh, last night, uh, um, last night I was in Great Neck speaking, so I got mixed up. <laughs> but this is yesterday morning. 
So yesterday morning we explored. Yesterday in the morning we explored the issue of uh, of klipa, klipa, which is. I want to point out one thing, and that is, people grow up in some communities with the word clip is very often, and it's a it's a it's a source of a lot of guilt. And like whenever something is not good, you say it's clippers, clippers, clippers. And really, people fail to realize that clippers is really a very sophisticated term. It was it was it's 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 one of it's an extremely sophisticated and nuanced term, which explains something very elegantly. It's 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 fascinating to me that sometimes. A term that's really very explanatory becomes very repressive. In other words, if you ask a child, what does clippus mean? It's bad. What makes it bad? Because they call it clippus. Really, the word justifies itself. The word says anything that is based on a cover-up is something that you want to avoid as much as possible. Right? You can't completely avoid cover-ups in this world. You have to buy bananas with banana peels. You have to buy nuts with walnut peels. That's part of life. Part of life is cracking nuts and peeling peels. But it represents the idea not to confuse the husk with the substance, the outer with the inner, appearance with, uh, with substance, pchitsonius with pnimius, that which has dazzlingly attractive appeal and appearance, but substantially it's, it's noxious. It's sugar-coated, but it may be poisonous inside. That entire concept, whether you're talking about in terms of uh, you know, investments, or you're talking about in terms of a spiritual life, or you're talking about in terms of psychological life, or in terms of, in terms of relationships, not everything that looks good on the outside is good on the inside, and sometimes the exact opposite. The only reason it looks good is because of the outside. And the moment you remove that, it, uh, it loses its power, it loses its significance. So generally the term is a very uh, important term because it actually gives a very serious message and a very understandable message and a very relevant and meaningful message about thoughts, words, or actions if they contain an element of cover-up in order to legitimize themselves. And without this, they lose their, their legitimacy, they lose their appeal, and they lose their significance. So this brings us to the general theme being addressed here, which we'll come back to Esau, and that is the difference between Kedusha and Klippa. Klippa is always identifiable, is always distinct from Kedusha. We say Kedusha is holiness and Klippa is unholy. Why would unholiness be called Klippa? And that is because all Klippa thrives, and the only reason it could thrive is because there's a shell. There's a shell that covers up a very fundamental truth, and the most fundamental truth, and that is, God is here, now, and our relationship is in its full capacity, full intimacy, and full power. When that truth is not felt, when that truth is not experienced, there is a certain cover-up in existence. For Klippa, on any level, to live, and breathe, and perpetuate the notion that it's real, it has to cover up that truth. That truth, which Chassidus calls the Pasuk in Veschan, an Ein Oid Movadai, that truth that I'm in a relationship with the Divine, with truth, right here, right now, in every space, in every time, in every, every moment, in every space, in every experience, in every encounter, wherever I am in the world, physically and conceptually, existentially, 
when that truth is diluted, when that truth is covered up, when a, when the truth, when there's a, a reality that doesn't recognize that, it can create realities based on that cover-up, and all the realities that exist based on that cover-up would go into the category of klipa. So this is really a very general parameter, a litmus test, for a person to be able to ask himself a question. If this thought that I'm pursuing, or these words, or these actions, or these relationships, would be put under a microscope, would be scrutinized, would be dissected, and they would be able to live after scrutiny, all the feedback, all the data would be open, and all the information would be exposed, and there would be no cover-ups whatsoever, emotionally, which are the deepest cover-ups, or intellectually. What would be my relationship? Would I look at it and say, Feh, get out of my life, you're disgusting. So then you have to realize that your, its appeal is basically a lie. could be a subtle lie, could be a grotesque lie, but it's a lie. That clippus has endless layers and endless shells and endless dimensions. If, however, it's put under the light and it's scrutinized and it will remain as powerful tomorrow and in a year as it is today, that's called Kedusha. Anything in Kedusha is never afraid of scrutiny. Why? Because it knows that it will survive after scrutiny. Anytime you're afraid, you know, of being investigated, <laughs> of being questioned. Why? Because you don't have the answers. <laughs> I'm only afraid to open the books if they're not legit. <laughs> if the books are legit, you want to come check them out. You want to come tomorrow, come tomorrow. You want to come again, come again. I'm not talking about vicious, somebody who wants to destroy you. I'm talking about legitimacy, right? If my, if my organization, if my website, if my shul, if my movement, if my business, if my company is, is fraud, then I don't want to be scrutinized. Why? Because that is klipa. It's based on shells, on husks. It looks good. I know how to advertise. I know how to present myself. I have a nice office. I know how to smile. I'm a charming fellow, etc. When you talk about it in cosmic absolute terms, kedusha is something, you could put it under the light... You could say, I want to think about it, I want to digest it, I don't want to act impulsively, and I'll come back to you, and Dusha says, no problem, I'll still be here, it's fine. The appeal of a mitzvah is never dependent on a mood, on an impulse, and that's why you'll see all tivus, all unhealthy cravings, always, um, they always, uh, they jump and they thrive on impulse. They'll always tell you these words, do it now. Because if you do it in an hour, it won't be available. Do it right now, right now, right now, now. Always. And if you turn to the Taiva and say, no, no problem, let me just investigate you. Give me three hours. I'm going to Google you. I'll do some research. I'll talk about it with a friend. And I'll come back. What's the Taiva going to tell you? No, 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 no. Now, now. Now, now is the utopio. Now is the euphoric experience. Now it's happening. Now, always now, right now. Why? Push it. Because if you Google him, <laughs> I don't know if Google always works for all clippers. Sometimes that's the clipper. But uh, you have to know. <laughs> Depends. But whatever Google means in your world, right? If you'll say, one second, I'll be back, I'll be back. No way, no way. There's a vart by Chesidim and Alta vart that the difference of both in a mitzvah and an avera there's always two expressions. There's the moment of, ah! There's the moment of, 
Oi. The question is only the order. By an Aveira, it always starts off with, Ah, this is going to be Geshmak. It's going to be wonderful. And then an hour later, a day later, it's, Oi, what did I do? I got into a mess. By a mitzvah, it's the other way. You have to get up in the morning to come learn. Oi, I'm not in the mood. But then an hour later, two hours later, it's, Ah. Why? Because Kedusha doesn't run away from reality ever. I'm fine. I'm, when I'm real, I'm real. What do they say? If you're going to lie, you better have a good memory. <laughs> because you always have going to be busy, you know. I lied yesterday. I told my wife I went to a shir last night. I went somewhere else, right? I went to a simcha. We know where I went. Um, uh, so that, you know, it's always cheshboidness. You have to halt cup. If you're real, it's fine. You can ask me a thousand questions. Sheker, there's many. Emes, there's only one. Emes can't contradict Emes. Emes could contradict Shekhar. So you always have to hold Cheshbon what the lie was. That's why if you have a bad memory, you have to be saying the truth. If you have a good memory, it's still a good idea in life. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember what you said. If you tell the truth, you don't have to remember what you said, where you were, where they think you were. Always. Always. The best, the best lie in life, the best principle in life is to say the truth. Yeah? There's an expression here, the best religion is the emes. <laughs> Huh? The emiss is the best religion. The emiss is the best I mean, if you take that further, I mean, as you said yesterday, social norms then will say a clipus because etiquette, because we're not really expressing what the ultimate truth is. So it's a necessary clipa, it's a clipa. And if I want to be really chutzpidic, I could say the Maratzchayas is a clipa. It's Shita, what he said about Parshish Torah is a clipa. Yeah. His Torah is not willing to be honest because so it is not willing to be honest. For educational purposes. Yeah, again, when you say the word clipper, you know, we have to understand the subtleties of it. But it's also correct to say that every clipper could be changed to condition. It doesn't mean that it stays a clipper. There are two types of clippers, actually. The Arizal, the Balatanya, and Tanya discuss these two types. There's a clipper called Klippas Noiga. There's a clipper known as Sholosh Klippas Hatmeyas She'ein Behem Toiv Klam. They come from the Merkava of Yecheskel. Ruach Sa'ara, Anan Gadol, Eish Mislachachas, V'noiga Loi Saviv. It's an expression in Yechezkel chapter 1 in his famous prophetic Merkava vision that we read in the Aftarya of Shavuos. So the Arizal explains in the Sefer Chaim and the Tanya explains that based on the Arizal that there's two types of clippers. Clippers noiga means a clipper that shines. Noiga means a shine. In other words, it's a translucent shell. When you look at the shell, you could pierce through to the depth. And that clipper could be completely sublimated. It could be aligned with the substance. Because that's a similar concept, like mitoch shaloylishma balishma, and there's an expression, an explanation in Hasidus that mitoch shaloylishma. If you look at the toichius, at the inside of the shaloylishma, you'll find the lishma also. Can klipas noyga can be sublimated, and and life must have that because we live in a world that is filled with shells and husks. The whole physical world is essentially a world of klipa because it conceals. The substance, even on a scientific level, when you're looking at this table, you don't see what's in this table. There's nothing that's going on that even looks like what it looks like. Absolutely not. It's a whole different universe. I'm talking pure secu- from a secular scientific level, what the eye defines reality is not reality. It's reality from the eye's perspective, but that's reality. <laughs> that is significant. You know, I could bang this table. I'm not, I'm not like banging trillions of atoms, right? What kind of and then there's a level of clipper where the husk is so is so um, opaque. The word is opaque. It's so um, 
The helm, the concealment is so powerful, the Hester is so powerful that I have to crack it. In other words, there's no way, or, or I can't crack it. In other words, the, I have to stay away from it. It's not like I could deal with it. You know, you could deal with a diplomat. You can't deal with a lawyer. It's very different. You know what I mean? Yeah, if, if there's a path of somebody... You know, in business, yeah, you have a partner. Sometimes you have partners who are a little complicated. You know what I mean? If you're dealing with a lawyer, it's very difficult. It's, you have to cut the relationship. Somebody lies and doesn't care. And, huh? You have people who have insecurities. So they have clippers. You could deal with it. People who are lying, they're just, there's not, nobody there. There's no one home. Every, nothing, nothing what they say they don't mean. They don't mean. They're like sick. They're, they're, they're toxic. You have to just know these things. Huh? By yourself, we also have these things. Yeah, there's certain things you have to stay away from. A person has a, I don't mean to mention addiction in every shear, but it's, it's a big issue. A person has an addiction. You can't say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink wine by the Seder night of Pesach. That's addiction. People who are addicted are not allowed to touch wine in the Seder of Pesach. They have to drink grape juice. Even though there are those who are not mate grape juice, but it's an issue of pikuach nefesh by them because they have a disease. Right? I'm just giving an example. The night of Pesach I become from. That's a clip. It's a something person, uh, don't get close to the vineyard. Not for everybody, but for this person, it's a very real, real situation. I was once at a, uh, in Boca Raton, there was, they have a lot of recovery programs in Florida. So I was once for a Shabbos there a few months ago with Dr. Twersky. So it was a very interesting Shabbos, a moving Shabbos. So there was somebody, they had a 12-step program there. So a person introduces himself and he says, Hi, my name is so-and-so. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic. Um, I've been in the program for 32 years. So afterwards, I went over to him and I said, when was the last time you drank alcohol? He says, 32 years ago. So I said, why do you call yourself an alcoholic? <laughs> I think I'm more of an alcoholic than you. <laughs> 32 years you didn't, uh, you didn't drink? Why do you call yourself an alcoholic? That's called an alcoholic. I said, not a cup. He says, not a drop. Not a drop. So he looked at me and he said, he said, Rabbi Jacobson, the moment I stop calling myself an alcoholic, I will become one. The moment I stop calling myself an alcoholic, I will become one. And that's called awareness of, of where you're just going to go into a very chaotic world where you'll become completely detached from yourself. The moment he loses guard, so you have to know what type of clip it is. In, in Tanya it says that's the difference of a davar mutter and a davar iser. Eating a kosher steak is also clipper because all food covers up the nutritious quality of it, Right? When you look at the outer element of the food, you don't see what it does to your blood. What it, that's, how, that's how it is. That's how God made it. You have to be able to dissect it. That's what nutritious, sens- nutritious sensitivity to nutrition is. On a spiritual, it certainly covers up the spiritual component of food. But it's all the same idea. But it's still mutter. What makes it mutter? I could say, Baruch Hashem Look at the food in a particular way and eat it that way. But then you say there's chazer. You don't say, oh, look at the chazer and say there's divine energy in the chazer and make a brach and eat it. You don't say that. Why? That's a clipper that you have to stay away from. It's not your job to sublimate chazer through eating. There's, let God deal with the chazer. One day the chazer will become kosher. I'll sit chazer, it's brought in the chazer, it's brought in the Do you agree with what the Apple said? 
you agree with this thing? I think that's, that's a chassar, not a mile. It, it, he's an alcoholic. It, it is a chassar, but, no, but that's the life he has. No, but by him calling himself an alcoholic 38 years later, he's still, he's still keeping himself an alcoholic. No, he, he, he knows he could fall today. Someone... Fall today. Someone I know people in recovery. Someone that has You wouldn't say the same on a diabetic, would you? <coughs> the same thing. Okay, it's not so clear. It's not so clear. Psychological problems too. And psychology is quite real. Can't snap out of everything. It's not so simple. Sometimes it becomes a real disease. It's it's not so simple. Someone that hasn't drunk wine in six months is called a dry drunk. Huh? Someone that hasn't touched wine, an alcoholic, in six months is called a dry drunk. A dry drunk, huh? Interesting. Six months. Okay. After all these, my modem, you still ask this question. A neshama is a chelik alekamim al mamish. A goof is holy. What was that stuff? There could be what you you heard otherwise. Really? Okay. Was? A be'ed is a malik. When I feel a malik, the Rambam Paskin, as a malik becomes nizgayer, is ois a malik. That means the clipper could be nizbar. It's not so partial with a malik. It's a psag din ha Rambam. A malik that's nizgayer is accepted. He becomes a full Jew. There's no din. You know that's a psag ha Rambam. Not so partial. The Gemara says, Mibnei bonov shel homon lomdu toire bebnei brak. Gemara and Sanhedrin. Okay. You're right, you're right. A Moloch represents something that's beyond Biru. You're right, the concept of a Moloch. So, so, so now we, so this is the, the, the important Yisoyed that there's the A and there's the Oi, right? So the Clipper thrives on instantaneous stuff, always instantaneous, right now, right now, right now. It looks like, looks like Zvizus. It's not Zvizus. Zvizus is a good thing. Jesus means don't delay doing good things. So he doesn't want you to delay it because if you, because if you put it under the light, it's it fades away. You see it always that way. Insta- it thrives on instant gratification because there's no not instant gratification. Because an hour later there's no gratification. You're looking for the next time. Kedusha doesn't work that way. Kedusha has eternal, timeless relevance because it's rooted in reality. And anything that's rooted in reality is real. And anything that's real today is real today and real tomorrow and real in the next 10 years and real in 100, 100 years as well. doesn't go away. doesn't change. So now we come back to understand the 10 versus the 11. This is the reason why in Kedusha everything is 10. And by Klippa suddenly there's number 11. There's... The Ktoiris, which is number 11, which the Ktoiris came to battle the idea of Klip. The Rambam says, the Rambam in Meri Nevuchim writes a lot of things that became controversial over history. The Balatanya felt that everything in Meri Nevuchim was really holy. This was a very big uh, Chiddush of his. Because generally the Kabbalists, the mystics, and even a lot of the, the Rabbonim in Meri Nevuchim was very problematic. The Rajbe, a lot of people, Meri Nevuchim was very rational, very philosophical. 
the Meir Nevuchim was, uh, was hard to make Shalom Bayis with the Meir Nevuchim, because a lot of things that he writes there. Well, Tanya felt that Meir Nevuchim is Kedusha, it's Kulei Torah, and it's consistent with Kabbalah, which was like very revolutionary. So the Meir Nevuchim writes that the reason that the Ketoidus was there was because it was a horrible smell in the Besamekdash. So it was Pashat perfume. There was such a bad smell perfume. The Ramamos holds that the whole reason of Karbonus is because the Jews were so pagan, and therefore they were used to sacrificing children. That's what everybody did. So God said, you know what? You can't take out an addict completely. Instead of killing people, you'll kill animals. But it's really very primitive. And ultimately, killing of all types, even animals, is a horrible thing. The Ramban criticizes the Rambam. How do you say this about Karbonus? Uh, famous Machlaikas Rambam and Ramban. The Meir Nevuchim wrote a lot of interesting things the way he wanted to explain it. In Zoyer it says, the reason of Ketoidus is, also to remove bad smell, spiritual bad smell. So you see that the Meir Nevuchim and the Zoyer actually say the same reason but in different words. He speaks physical and he speaks spiritual. But if you understand that the spiritual always mirrors the physical, so the Rambam is really articulating the Zoyar in physical terms. So really, an interesting thing, um, uh, the Ishbitzer brings, the Beis Yaakov brings, the son of the Me'ah Shiloyach, that the Rambam, Emer Nevuchim, the guide of the Rambam, brings reasons for all the mitzvahs. All the 600, he has a reason for everything. Even Chukim, he has reasons for everything. And uh, comes one mitzvah, lechem haponim. <laughs> lechem haponim, they had to put on the table in the Besamekdash. Every Shabbos, 12 loaves of bread, and they would leave it for a week and eat it the next Shabbos and bring out the new bread. It wasn't, it wasn't chametz, it was matzah. It was uh, not chametz. So the Rambam says on lechem haponim, imer nevochem, chela gimel, ein taimu yadua. This, there's no reason. Everyone is struggling. Everything. Carbon is because Jews couldn't deal with not killing. They had to kill. So kill animals. At least you don't kill people. Ketoid is because you need perfume. Lechem upon him, you couldn't find a reason why Hashem wants bread in the base of Mikdash. It's not the most mysterious thing in the world. But Frat, you have Mepharshim that give different ideas. The source of Parnosa, Lechem, includes all the food. Lechem, Levav, and Ishisad, Kolso, Dekarich. I mean, there's explanations for Lechem upon him in Mepharshim. The Ramam says, ain't time you do the Beis Yaakov says, the Ishbitzah says something very fascinating. He says, take a look in Kisve Harizal. I don't know how many of you are familiar with a, with a poem that Harizal wrote. Some people sing it Shabbos afternoon. Asadir l'sudosa, b'tzafra de Shabbatah v'azmin bahashta tika kadisha. In the middle of that song, in the middle of that poem by Harizal, there's a line. Yigalalon taime, the b'srei sername. Hashem, please reveal to us the reason of the 12 pieces of bread. So he says, interesting, the Chaim has no reason, and the Rambam has no reason. He says, look what's happening. He says, the only reason, there's, a, there's only way there's a reason in Meir Nevuchim is, if you have a reason in Chaim. Even though Chaim and Meir Nevuchim are universes apart, not even, infinite universes apart. Chaim is Kulei Kabbalah. The Rambam, not a trace of Kabbalah. Philosophy, 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 what they love to call rationalism. The Rambam passed away in the early 1200s, right? The Rambam was born 1135, passed away 1205 later. The passed away 1572. So it was hundreds of years later, of course. But in other words, the concept is, the Meir Nevochim is not some he invented the cute reasons. It's Kabbalah, the way it came to be translated in the terms of Meir Nevochim, which are concrete, philosophical, rational, but it's the same energy. Right? It's Ishtal Atazah. What is in Atzillus is in Yitzir, it's in Asiyah. That's the, the word is exactly that's the word, Ishtal The same truth, 
evolving and expressing itself in a different incarnation. So by Ketoides, I once heard from the Lubam Rebbe, he said, look at Ketoides, you'll see. The Rambam says in the Meren of Ruchim, the Zoya says exactly the same thing. He speaks in Ruchnis, he speaks in Gashmi. Somebody asked something. Yeah, that's Chaim. Knew about the Meren of Ruchim, was it for it? Against yeah, it? of course he knew the Meren of Ruchim. Was he no. for it, against it? Do we know? He doesn't. He's it's a different world. It's a different genre. It's a different genre. Yeah. yeah. You learned Berchus Shmuel ever from the Baruch Ben? You won't have a Chidok quoted there, right? You understand what I'm saying? And you won't have a Chsam Soifer quoted there or Yismach Moshe, right? It's just you'll have the Pchayim, the Pchayim, the Pchayim, the Pchayim, right? Yeah, it's, it's a different genre. It's a different uh, different. Thing. The Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, in all of his Svarim. He'll quote him out in the and he'll say, and it's true, I'll pee Always. He was, he felt that there's a synthesis. Okay, that's a whole separate Indian, how he did that. He had a whole mahalach in it. It's, it's a separate shir. Huh? Um, it could be seen that way. Yeah. It was certainly seen that way by people. It was even burnt. There was a time they burnt. They burnt his Swadim, they burnt Sefer yeah, Rabbi Nuyoyna. Some people say Rabbi Nuyoyna wrote his Shari Tshuva to do Tshuva. Some people say Rabbi Nuyoyna wrote Shari Tshuva to do Tshuva because of his opposition to the Rambam Swaram. Rabbi Nuyoyna wrote Shari Tshuva for himself. People read Shari Tshuva Rabbi Nuyoyna. They don't realize he was writing for himself. He wasn't burning Yeah. He felt that it was a terrible mistake of his life. Terrible mistake of his life. Yeah. <laughs> Story of Jewish history. Somebody speaks new ideas, it challenges people, and their only way of dealing with it is by calling it apikursus and kfira. And they go out, becherev abachanis, and a hundred years later they realize that this person saved Judaism. You understand? Huh? <laughs> In Kedusha, it's also called Klippa? No. And it's not called Klippa at all? Yeah. Because it has substance. Klippa is only when it's empty. It's, it's ultimate. All the veils were removed. Kedusha remains in its full power. No impulses. I'm not needy. I'm not codependent. I'm not feeling this void. I don't need Instagram. The power of Kedusha is essential. It's essential. It's real. It speaks to the real needs and it speaks to the real makeup of the human soul. Even when I'm completely wholesome, it speaks, it's real, it has real substance, it's rooted in reality. Why? Because it's in touch with the truth of reality. And the truth of reality is that everything is saturated with true energy, with the divine energy, including the person. So now, so let's now see the next step here. One, two, three, four, four lines from the bottom, page 38. We said, Everything gets chiyos. But They have a relationship with the divine energy. They surrender to it. They're nullified to it. In other words, they align themselves with it. You identify, Kedusha identifies itself as divine. Because they're cognizant 
of their Kedusha, which is part of Hashem's Kedusha. They're cognizant of their Kedusha. In the world of Kedusha, you're always cognizant of your own holiness, because you are holy. The biggest clipper, by the way, to Isaac, the worst clipper is the idea that a person is clipper. That's the worst clipper. The worst clipper is the idea that a person is clipper. That's the worst clipper, because it's not true. You understand? That's the worst clipper. One of the worst. Rebbein Kalina said that depression is Nishkin Aveda, Atzvus is not an Aveda, but what it could bring is no Aveda in the world could bring to. Because depression is real, the real clipper. Depression really means what? I'm a lost soul. I'm a hopeless soul. Uh, everything in my life is bad. What do you mean everything in your life is bad? God is crazy about you at this moment. He thinks you're like the best thing in the world that ever happened. <laughs> Everything is bad. You're, you're worthless. You're this. So that's a very deep clip. Clip is generally operate on a level of arrogance with a, with, a, with a level of chutzpah. And chutzpah could mean, of course, terrible arrogance or terrible insecurity. It's always the same thing. The point is that it's not associated, it has to create a substitute self instead of God's self. Whenever I have to create a new self outside of God's self, it's because I don't feel that relationship. So I need to create a new self. Ketusha is never looking to be able to create a new identity because it's very comfortable in its identity. Because real identity is comfortable in identity. Real people are very comfortable in their own skin. The reason people lie is because they're not comfortable with their reality. They have to create fictional realities for themselves. There are people who are addicted liars, you know that? They could never say the truth. You'll ask them what time it is, they'll lie. Yeah? You, you can't trust them if it's day or night. It's like almost... Anybody knows what I'm talking about? It's a habitual lie. It's, it's like habitual. It's a, something pathological. And it comes from a very deep place. They're afraid to live with reality because reality equals suicide. So they're always creating substitute fictional realities because reality is too painful to deal with. It's really a very painful situation. You always need a substitute for reality. But Mela, why do you need a substitute for reality? Because you're not comfortable in reality because you don't think you exist. And the reason you don't think you exist is because you're divorced from the divine because if you would be attached, of course you exist. You exist as part of the infinite. You exist as part of the Ein Saif. Klippe always creates substitute existences, and therefore it needs to create a new self. That self operates on two levels, either very arrogant or very insecure, but it's the same thing. You're not comfortable with who you are. So either you have to dominate, or you have to be dominated, but it's really the same thing, right? You have to dominate because you don't exist, and you have to be dominated because you don't exist. So this chutzpah that we're talking about is basically a replacement for the real self with a pseudo-self. It's a very powerful. It's not that they don't have divine energy. Of course they have divine energy. But the divine energy is in exile. When somebody is in Golos, you're not expressive. When somebody is in exile, say they exiled uh, the most fun, the most famous exiles, take Napoleon to St. Helene, where was it? Huh? Yeah, right. So here you had a man who owned the world, literally conquered the world, and now he was trapped. A caged lion. So all your creativity... Okay, Napoleon was quite an arrogant man. Uh, but the point here is, a person's creativity complete, com- completely stifled in exile, like in prison. Your imagination, your, your self-realization is severely compromised, if not obliterated. Lahavdal, when you say the chiyos of the Ein Sof is in Golos somewhere, it means it's there. 
and it functions, and it has an impact, but it's completely not expressive. It's exiled. In other words, it's, it's, it's manipulated somewhat, or it's repressed, because the klipa completely conceals it and defines it. It doesn't allow it to express itself fully in the consciousness of the person. So I have tremendous kedusha in me, but it's in galus. That's the idea of galus. Galus means you're there, but you're in exile. You're in exile means the true identity cannot be fully expressed. And that's why, by definition, a person who lives with klippa lives always with a split, with a dissonance. Because you can't divorce yourself from Kedusha, because that's how you live. On the other hand, you can't live with Kedusha, because if you would, you wouldn't be you. So for you to exist, you have to have a split personality by definition, so there's no peace of mind. In the world of klippa, there's no peace. There's always a dichotomy, there's a split. Because there's a chius of Kedusha in you, without that you can't live. But by definition, it's in Golos. And therefore, there's the pain of very deep existential angst because there's no oneness. There's no holistic integration of the person's life. They have chiyos of Kedusha, but there's no relationship with it. There's no bittel to it. I, I don't become part of it. I can't surrender to it and say, this is who I am. They have to go to the opposite extreme. Become like eagles, which is an expression of the bird that has to soar above everyone else. It's a... It becomes swallowed up like bittel. We learned in the morning in Mesech Nebetz about bittel, bittel beroiv, bittel beshishim. What's the idea of bittel? The milk that falls into the choland, right? The egg that gets mixed into the other eggs. And it becomes absorbed. It becomes swallowed up. It's not even visible anymore. It's there, but it's not visible. It's as though it doesn't exist in terms of impact. It doesn't have an influence on the person's life. Because the person is completely non-cognizant of what they really have inside of them. It's a very tragic life. You're completely detached from your own chios, your own true energy. Because you can't acknowledge what it is. And therefore you create substitutes for it. And the substitute is also feeding off the Ein Saif. Because that's where all Chiyos comes from. So even the dysfunction is coming from functionality. But it's completely distorted. There's no link between who you are and who you think you are. But it's survival technique. Of course it's all... Yeah. always is survival technique. It's always surviving. Always. And it survives it's well. It's life or death. In its imagination, yeah. Huh? Guilt after an Aved, is it clip or not? We go back to the lovely question of guilt, which we keep on coming back to. I, I think it def- depends how you define the guilt. If, if guilt means I did something wrong, I made a mistake, and it's causing me pain, and it caused my soul pain, and I'm not going to do this again, I'm going to apologize, that's a good thing. But if the guilt means I'm worthless, I'm hopeless, that's one of the biggest clippers. Is it encouraging or is it not encouraging? Yeah. Does it cause you to destroy yourself or to build yourself? Does it cause you to go to sleep? <laughs> Take a pill and go to sleep or watch television and fall asleep? Or does it cause you to do something? If, if It's a difference between atzvus and mirirus. Atzvus causes you to go to sleep. And mirirus is a form of pain or remorse. Where on the contrary, I... I, I I want to change the reality. But here's the question. How could somebody be in Golos and really dominate the situation? How does Kedusha give them life when it's so bottle, when it's so absorbed, when it's so nullified? You just said that the Kedusha can't rear its head. It has to completely duck. How does it have then the mechanism of giving it Chayis? 
And here we come to the number 11. That's why there was number 11, Levoina, frankincense. The klipa, by definition, has to have an oyer that Kedusha doesn't have to have. And this is in a fascinating uh, turn. Uh, what's it called? Topsy turvy. When uh, what is it called? When, in a fascinating twist, there's something in the klipa in its relationship with Gdusha that Gdusha doesn't have. And that's called the Ur Makif. Literally, Makif comes from the word Hekif, like Hakafis, right? To surround. In, in, right? You have in, in Gemara Bab Metziah, you have Makif and Nikif. Yeah? Makif and Nikif. I'm Makif you, and you're Nikif, Mukif. You're Mukif by me. Ur Makif means a surrounding light. Here, it doesn't mean geographically that the Ur surrounds the cup. Like we spoke many times about Soiviv Kalalman, we're not speaking about geographically surrounding something, but we're talking about the concept of makif. Makif means when something has a relationship with something else, but not in a conscious way. Because the thing that is impacting me is maybe very, very intense, and it's beyond of what I could filter through my brain. So therefore, it's relegated to a space that is beyond me. So you say, it's makif me. It envelops me. It defines me but in a way of makif versus a way of pnimi. Pnimi means it's articulated in terms that are accessible to me through my own consciousness. Makif means I have no way of wrapping my brain around this, because if I would be able to wrap my brain around this, it would define me. But klippe will never allow itself to be defined by God, because then it's not klippe anymore. So, but klippe needs God desperately to live. So the chius that goes into klippe gets absorbed, but that's not enough to make it live. In order to make it live, there's another area that's number 11. Number 11 is not existing in Kedusha. Why? The paradox is that the beauty of Kedusha, right, is something that doesn't need number 11, because it's integrative. So since it's integrative, the Ur could always be Pnimiyazdik, because you are ready to open yourself up to it. So the Ur comes into the Kali, this complete integration. So what do you need 11? You have 10. Because that's the structure of Kedusha, the 10 Koiches, the ten lights that God identified within Himself, which becomes fully integrated in the world of holiness. The world of Klippa, which is not ready for integration. So you have the Ur Makif, Lefi Shou Einoi Nivla Besoicham, or Lefi Shou Ur Makif Melmaila Minadas Shalahem, Veeinam Margishim Boy, Vachius Shenim Shechlem Bepnimius Nivla Kanal, Lefichachem is Goyim Umagbiim Asatsum Bechutzpe Kanal. So they have here two lights. The light that goes into them is complete. It's inside of them that creates their structure, their consciousness. But they don't know what their consciousness is coming from because it's completely absorbed in them. The kedusha takes doesn't wear the pants in the house. The kedusha becomes completely subservient, but that's not enough to make it live. It also has another ur that's completely above the clip. It's super conscious and it's infinite. And because it's so infinite, they don't relate to it, so they don't acknowledge it. So therefore they get chiyas from it and they don't have to acknowledge it because it's l'chatchila not filtered according to their kalim. But the common denominator of both is they don't have to deal with it in a conscious way. And therefore they could create a pseudo-identity outside of divine identity. It's the levaina that links the ten spheres of kedusha to the ten koiches of Tumah. Without number 11, the link would never happen. Because this 10 is so different than this 10. It's number 11 that allows Kedusha to animate and give vitality to Klippa. For who Reisha the Esav? 
This is the mystery of Esau. This is the head of Esau. The Hainu B'chines HaMakif. The Makif of Esau. Hu Nichlo Be'itfoy De Yitzchak Mamish Begdusha. When you look at Esau's Makif, it's one with Yitzchak. It's complete holiness. The head of Esau is buried with Yitzchak. The Makif of Esau is a Gewalt. And that's why Esav comes to his father and he says, Tata, how do you give Meiser from straw? He was not lying. This was Esav. Esav in his makif is as holy as Yitzchak. The tragedy of Esav is he's not an integrated person. So Yitzchak looks at his son and he says, Wow, such a boy. He asks me how he give Meisah from salt. And then a few years later he says, Esav is mentioning God's name? No, it's not Esav. So he asks, Was Yitzchak fooled? Wasn't he fooled? Was he naive? Was he not naive? Did he know Esav? He did not know Esav. He knew Esav full and well. But he knew that Esav doesn't know Esav. Esav doesn't know Esav. There's the makif of Esav. The makif of Esav wants to give Meisah from salt and straw. The makif of Esav has a very unique idealism to it, and as we will see, it has an idealism that's higher than Kedusha, because it's infinite. On the other hand, the integrated element of Esav, the Pneumius of Esav, is completely detached. The consciousness of Esav, the way he defines himself, and therefore, Ein Shemayim Yitzchak, of course, through his blessings, is going to try to integrate the Makif of Esav with the Pnimi of Esav. That's what he wants to do. He wants to be able to take number 11 of Esav, that's the Ketoridus, the Reich of the Ketoridus, as we will see further. So, so not just that Esav's head has a shaykhus with Yitzchak, but Esav's head also couldn't be buried with the rest of Esav. Right. Esav's head has to go to Yitzchak. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.